know, Jay, Professor X was not a great father. No kidding, Miles. It's probably just as well that he only had the one kid. He has more than one kid. Right, right, I know. Alternate timelines. No, man, he has at least one other kid in the 616. Okay, Jay, I know Legion has a lot of personalities, but I would still only count him as one. Professor X has a kid who is not Legion. Huh. Uh, Okay, when were they born? Oh, she wasn't born. Don't tell me she's some kind of psychic manifestation or something. She hatched from an egg. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 365 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. 365? Jay, if listeners wanted to, they could listen to a unique episode of our show every single day of the year. Not in a leap year. Oh, uh, good point. That'll be next time. Uh, that being said, that that's a lot of us. I'm reminded of the, um, Mr. Popeil song that Weird Al Yankovic did about those old infomercials, talking about how one product, uh, you could even cut a steel can with it, but you wouldn't want to! I listened to a lot of Weird Al when I was younger. A year on Mars is 687 days. Oh, we'd have to go for a long time to get enough for our Martian listeners. Speaking of Mars, Mars is in space. I mean, okay, so is Earth, but Mars is more, like, famously in space. Uh, And we are talking about space today. I mean, Mars is in space relative to Earth. Yeah, but, you know, people think space, they think planets other than Earth, because Earth is where we are. People on Earth. True. I mean, we are so Earth-centric. We really are. Well, anyway, today we are covering a couple of stories kind of linked by continuity, but mostly linked thematically, and that they have space bullshit. Specifically Shi'ar bullshit. Oh man, that's the most imperialistic and crappiest kind of space bullshit, although it makes for some of the best stories. In this episode, well, I don't know about that, but you know, still. We haven't seen the Shi'ar for a while, so I kind of want to go back a little bit over who they are. Now the Shi'ar, as you may or may not recall, are slightly avian humanoids who run a massive, massive space empire. They're one of the big imperial powers of space, along with, like, the Skrulls and the Brood and, you know, all those fun guys. The Shi'ar Empire is very, very heavily sort of Roman Empire-flavored and similarly warlike. It's run right now by Magestrix Lilandra, who is Professor Xavier's on-again, off-again girlfriend, and one of her primary lieutenants is her sister and frequent antagonist, Deathbird, who is currently running the planet of Hala, the Kree homeworld, which is again currently under Shi'ar control. Deathbird is not a good person, but she does have a really excellent name, so I don't know, it's kind of a wash. Pretty rad plumage, too. Mm, excellent plumage. The Shi'ar also are responsible for a lot of pretty impressive technology, you know, on account of having empired a bunch of other species as well, including the holographic technology found in the X-Men's Danger Room. Later on, this same technology will become sentient in an attempt to kill the X-Men. But that's not for a number of years. So now, we should probably look at, at what's been going on so far on X-Force, because that's the first team we're going to be touching base with. You know, there's not a ton we need to talk about with X-Force. 
They're the mostly younger than the X-Men, but still older than Generation X, X-Team, and they're currently based out of the X-Mansion. You know, the one with the aforementioned Danger Room. We definitely mentioned that for a reason. They're also currently sharing their annuals with Cable, which brings us to the X-Force and Cable 1996 annual, Transmission. This story is written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Luke Ross, inked by Rob Hunter and Matt Ryan, colored by Shannon Blanchard, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Albert Deshane. So, John Francis Moore, we've looked at his stuff before. He did a run of X-Factor, he did Factor X, he's done all sorts of stuff. I think he did some miniseries that we covered. Including our weird favorite, Wolverine Killing. Oh yeah, that thing was great! Well done, John Francis Moore, or JFM, as presumably some people call you. I'm gonna. Anyway, he's going to be the new writer on X-Force, following up on Jeff Loeb's run, so we're going to be covering a lot of his stuff going forward. As far as Luke Ross, I think we've seen his stuff before. His art style is pretty good. It's a comic book art style. It's sort of in line with some of the art we've seen on X-Force recently, like with Adam Polina and artists like that. Yeah, there's nothing that really stands out about it. Um, It's perfectly adequate 90s Marvel House style. Or, well, actually, yeah, I'm going to take that back because um, he he does have, have a specific quirk I associate heavily with the 90s, which is that he draws female characters like someone has grabbed them around the middle and squeezed. So you brought that up when we were talking about this issue, and my wife Anna saw some art from this issue and brought that up as well. And the big question, of course, is, well, if the women have waist this tiny, where do their organs go? And I have an answer. Is it their boobs? Uh, no. In fact, you know how Phantom X has, like, a UFO that his central nervous system is inside and flies around nearby? I do. Well, each of these female characters has an organ UFO, slightly off-panel, containing, you know, their pancreases and stuff. I have a different theory. Oh, yeah? You know how when echinoderms are threatened, they can throw their stomachs at things? I do. Yeah, basically that. Oh. Well, that's delightfully horrifying. Speaking of that cover, though, and in fact, speaking of female characters with improbably tiny waists, the cover is a big fight scene between X-Force and some Shi'ar people and a guy named Pulse who we'll be talking about. And on it, Siren, I think, is supposed to be flying, but in her freeze-frame flying pose, she just sort of is looking dramatic with her very serious facial expression and her outstretched hands and fingers. It looks like she's casting wizard spells. And I guess later on she will be possessed by the Morrigan, who's a goddess that does have spells. So, you know, maybe it's some foreshadowing. I mean, I think most characters are better when wizard. I'm gonna agree with that. I mean, Iceman sure as hell is. Absolutely. Anyway, speaking of the aforementioned space, we begin in the outer reaches of the Milky Way at a Stargate, which looks a lot like the ring from The Expanse, which just ended the TV version anyway, and boy was that good. I'll take your word for it. Oh, Jay, it's so good. Anyway, a tiny spaceship, a Kree star skimmer called the Nova Burst, flees from a giant spaceship, a Shi'ar warbird, the Hawk's Blood. I gotta mention, these names are awesome. Naming spaceships is rad. I'm about to start playing in a Star Wars role-playing game, and our ships are the Wayward Hound and the Bolt, and those are pretty cool, but uh, Nova Burst is probably cooler. I find it slightly suspect that this ship is named after an Earth species. Maybe that's just the translation, and really it's something in the Shi'ar language referring to a vaguely analogous bird. Or possibly one of the Shi'ar people, because they're kind of birds. I mean, I assume that hawks are to the Shi'ar people as, like, I don't know, capuchin monkeys are to us. Maybe. How would they feel about Warren Worthington III? He's a hawk. Or at least acts like one. 
And come to think of it, his blood can cure AIDS, we'll later find out. Yeah, that's that's definitely a story that comes up later. Well, anyway, speaking of these spaceships, they look awesome. Credit to Luke Ross. The small ship is all banged up, and the big one's all geometrically perfect, but still complicated with all those Star Wars-y-looking fiddly bits all over it. It's it's pretty cool. This is very much a space opera story, so we're not going to see a lot of mutant metaphor stuff. We're not going to see a lot of social politics. We're not going to see a lot of mutant anything. Mainly, it is space bullshit that the X-Men happen to be involved in. Or, well, X-Force in this case. And extradition. Oh, and extradition. Anyway, in the Nova Burst, we meet Pulse. Pulse is an android built by the Kree using Shi'ar technology. The Kree, again, being one of the species that the Shi'ar have recently conquered. Pulse is a big, muscly robot in vaguely insectoid, blue, armored, carapacey stuff with these really cool visible gray cables between his armor plates. He looks genuinely awesome. And even his pilot's chair is badass. It's so complicated. There are even these little visible footrests. I love it when there are practical bits, although as a robot, he probably wouldn't care. Now, Pulse cannot risk capture, so he decides that what he's going to do is piss the Shi'ar off enough that they'll destroy his ship. Pulse first thinks to himself, I will modulate my voice to simulate defiant anger. And then says to the Shi'ar who have dialed him up, Tell me, Tremor, you maggot-eating carrion. Is it true that Shara and Kithri hatched your pustulant race in the droppings of Skrull field oxen? Ooh, burn.exe. Nice. And of course, the Shi'ar being the Shi'ar are like, Welp, we're offended, therefore murder time, and blow up the ship. Pulse, thankfully, teleports away amid the explodo. Pulse does not exactly teleport away. He sends himself in the form of data to the nearest inhabited planet. In fact, the only inhabited planet in this backwater solar system, and that is Earth. I'm going to come back to Star Wars again, this being a space opera story. It kind of reminds me of how Tatooine is the least important, most boring planet in the whole galaxy, and yet, like, half the stuff in Star Wars happens there. Okay, you know what, though? They have Jawas, which are great. Jawas are great, and we learned recently on the TV shows, very furry. Huh. Anyway, X-Force is doing what super teams often do when they first appear on an issue, and they're in a Danger Room training scene. And before we get into this, I do want to apologize. I mentioned recently that the Danger Grotto was also holographic in Generation X. No, no, it's mostly a natural biome. It's got some Shi'ar holographic technology in there, but my bad. My my expertness is very slightly revoked. Anyway... This this danger room, however, is all Shi'ar technology, solid light hologram fun. Um, and today it is in the form of the New Orleans sewers from Cable's future. And they're here specifically to reenact one of Cable's old missions. No one's particularly happy to be there, although Cable does throw in a giant squid just, just to make it interesting. Hey, wait a minute. Caliban fought a giant squid in sewers one time. You'd think he would have mentioned something about it. Although, the way he's written these days, his memory's probably not the hottest. Yeah, Apocalypse kind of did a number there. He did, he did. Although, the last squid story was after that. But uh, anyway, the important part is we are reminded once again of all of the elaborate underground tunnels in the below-sea-level city of New Orleans in the Marvel Universe. We don't see any thieves or assassins around here. I assume the squid got them. What's even wilder is that it would be that much further below sea level in Cable's future. 
oh, oh, that's really true because the, the seas would have risen unless Apocalypse, like, I don't know, evaporated them or something. This bothers me so much. There's a lot wrong with New Orleans sewers full of squids. We, of course, get, you know, intro- introductions to the team, tidbits of their personalities, including the detail that that's, you know, come up on and off again now, which is that Sunspot has bits of the Ascani language and Cable's memories as a result of the mind meld that cured him of being Rainfire, which will later turn out he wasn't actually. But we're just going to gloss that for the moment, because honestly, nothing about Rainfire even makes sense. So this being one of John Francis Moore's first X-Force issues and him starting an X-Force run pretty soon in our coverage... I think I've mentioned I haven't really read that, so I'm curious if this whole Ascani thing is going to become a big deal in the upcoming run. Like, that's a very specific and interesting thing to have be Sunspot's defining personality trait in this scene. Or at least a defining detail of it. And I mean, given the setting and context of the scene, I think it it works okay. I am I am really curious as to see where the character is going to go in the rest of the run, though, yeah. Well, suddenly the danger room goes bananas! Instead of being in New Orleans' famous sewers, they are in New York City, as is a big robot. And they're in New York City of the present, not of Cable's future. Uh, right, just regular old New York City. Now, the giant robot is, of course, Pulse, and Pulse has homed in on the Shi'ar technology in the Danger Room, and he's using it to try to reconstruct himself. But his code has gotten jumbled up with the memories programmed into the danger room. And so he's trying to figure out what he is and distinguish himself. And and in the process, he's taking the forms of robots that have been programmed into the danger room's memory, the first of which is Ultron. And as all this is going on, Cable and Domino are just watching from the control room, trying to figure out how to stop the sim. It's not working. So it's time for them to put in a call to tech support. And as someone who works in IT, I should just say, never call tech support. There's always an issue tracking system. Put in a trouble ticket. It's more efficient and quicker for everybody. Yeah, but Miles, it's Shi'ar tech support, which means that there's probably like multiple stages of single combat involved in submitting a ticket. Oh, yeah. Submit has multiple senses here. Anyway, Deathbird intercepts the call, another reason you should never call, and mentions, oh yeah, there's a fugitive from the Shi'ar Empire on Earth. You guys need to cooperate with us and hang on to that fugitive for us while we send a team to pick him up. There's also this bizarre panel of Domino and Cable watching Deathbird's holo transmission that is super zoomed in on both of their butts. I appreciate that it's at least equal opportunity. Domino butt on one side, Cable butt on the other. Deathbird in the middle. Oh, now I'm in somebody's fanfiction. No, like, the overbutt POV is a big thing in this era. It kind of is, yeah. Well, anyway, point being, Pulse is now Ultron, who also has a butt, uh, even if that's not one of his more defining characteristics, complete with giant villain speeches. His butt? Uh, no, just his voice. At the moment of my creation, mankind became obsolete. Your weak flesh and inefficient minds cannot compete with the technological purity of the Ascendant Machine. I really love how your version of Ultron is basically a more eloquent Dalek. Eh. Well, after this non-Dalek Ultron is stabbed by Shaddy Buns' sword, he realizes, wait, he's not Ultron, and the setting shifts to feudal Japan, and Pulse comes back as Deathlock. Okay, so this is this is the part where we start start to run sort of past my off-the-cuff knowledge of the Marvel Universe. What's Deathlock's deal? He's basically a robot zombie. Like, 
He was a future cop kind of guy that got machinery fused to him to be more of a badass, and the machinery took over his mind, and his flesh looks all corpsey. So he's Robocop. He's kind of Robert Cop, yeah. But he time travels, doesn't he? Uh, yes, so he's a cross between Robert Cop and Justice Peace from the Time Variance Authority from Old Thor. Okay. Anyway, this setting doesn't last too long, and next they're in the Savage Land, where Warpath grins real big and swings on a vine doing the oh oh we oh thing like Tarzan, and is then very sheepish when the vine breaks and Caliban catches him. Did this seem odd for Warpath to you? No, I think everyone harbors secret fantasies of doing something real cool like swinging on a vine. You know, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. But Warpath is sheepish a couple times in this issue, and I kind of wonder if it's going to be one of those things, like where when Jeff Loeb took over X-Force, he rewrote Caliban to be a gentle giant. When John Francis Moore takes over X-Force, is Warpath going to be more of a goof? Honestly, I feel like he could kind of use some more fun. Claremont had a very well-defined James Proud star back in New Mutants. In the present day, Vita Ayala has an even better-defined James Proud star in the current New Mutants. Uh, I don't know. We'll see how John Francis Moore does in the 90s. Now that they're in a new setting, Pulse has once again taken a new form, and this one is a more familiar one. This time, he is Warlock. And that kind of fucks X-Force up, because, you know, Warlock is very dead right now, as far as they know, ever since the Extinction Agenda. They don't realize he's kind of Douglock over an Excalibur. I mean, nobody does at this point. Because no one ever uses the damn phone. It's true. It's true. Uh, I appreciate that Warlock uh, grows wings as Sunspot grabs him to fly him out of the melee and actually talk to him. What I really appreciate about that is that Sunspot also forgets that they're in the danger room, which has a roof, so he hits his head on the sky. Okay, this issue is worth it just for that awesome concept, which is further explored when Siren and Warpath try to actually get to the wall of the danger room to mess with the power to hopefully end this messed up simulation, and mention that the danger room keeps subtly guiding them away from the walls based on the way its environment is structured. That is such a cool idea to make a finite space not feel finite. I love it. Yeah, that's really, really clever. Also, I learned what the Trump l'oil effect is, which is, according to Wikipedia, uh, an art technique that uses realistic imagery to create the optical illusion that the depicted object exists in three dimensions. Or sometimes kind of the reverse. Well, anyway, it's a cool phrase, which I assume is French. Yes. That does work. Uh, not the Trump l'oil effect. I mean, I guess that works too, but the thing where Siren and Warpath try to uh, rip the power cables out of the wall, and the danger room shuts down. Pulse is still Warlock, but having absorbed Warlock's personality as well as appearance, Pulse is just sort of friendly and inquisitive. And freaked out when Cable shows up, so he cartoonishly runs out the open door and smashes a hole in the wall to escape. My only complaint is it's not a perfectly Warlock-shaped hole, Looney Tune style. No, it's more of an X-Factor hole. Yeah, yeah. Wrong X-Team, Warlock. Sorry, buddy. Now, finding a surfboard at the boathouse outside finally reminds Pulse of of who he originally was enough to for him to actually get his programming back in order, go back to his original form, go back to his original mind. He is Pulse. His form and personality are back. Okay, we'll find out what the deal with the surfboard is toward the end of the issue, but I really wish it was just that Pulse had a love of riding sweet waves before he was a fugitive, and that was so core to his personality that that's what brought everything back. We can dream. We can dream. 
X-Force, restrain and question Pulse, who is totally cooperating. Jeez, chill out, guys. And he tells them, so he's just a data gatherer for the Kree resistance to the Shi'ar occupation. And what's interesting here is that Siren, Teresa Rourke or Teresa Cassidy, gets it. She mentions how emphatically she cares about the British occupation of Northern Ireland. And I'm not sure that that's really come up very much before, but it comes up multiple times in this issue. And I also suspect that may be a recurring aspect of her character under John Francis Moore's upcoming run. We'll see. So everybody debates. I mean, the Kree are no angels either, but Deathbird, like, super sucks. And Sunspot points out, this would be a lot easier if Lalandra was still living at the mansion. Which is an awesome callback, because yeah, he was one of the early New Mutants at the time when Professor Xavier had a live-in girlfriend from space. When the Shi'ar show up, they won't explain what's going on. They just say that Pulse is guilty, they won't prove anything, um, but they need to take him and they need to execute him. Now. Uh, to which Domino responds, Not in the United States, pal. So this brings up some questions for me, the first of which is whether an extradition treaty with the Shi'ar would be with a nation or would be with the planet? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, because the Shi'ar definitely see uh, planets as, like, whole entities. Like, they'll talk to the representative of a planet, I think. Right, and we know that, that at least in the future, S.W.O.R.D. is going to function as the diplomatic arm of planet Earth as a whole. Right, and, I mean, Mars will even represent the entire solar system eventually. I guess Domino thinks locally rather than globally. I guess, which brings up a whole other set of questions, because you would think that the United States would be basically ideologically aligned with the Shi'ar as basically an imperialist state. Yeah, but the U.S. is also famously xenophobic, and those Shi'ar people do have, like, cloacas and stuff. Do we know that for sure? I mean, I'm kind of confident. Professor X, uh, tell us about your sex life. Don't open that door. Never open that door. Don't open that door. Anyway, after a tense standoff, Siren Warpath bring out the smashed robo-body of Pulse, saying, hey, you know, it's all over. At which point the Shi'ar detect Pulse's data streaming away once again. And X-Force is like, hey, we tried to hold him, but we're just pitiful humans like you were just talking about, right? What could we even do? They are so delightfully smug. The lead Shi'ar bad guy is not a fan. You humans have no reason to be smug. You've aided an enemy of the Imperium. And when the time comes, you will be held personally accountable, Cable. You're confused. Earth isn't part of the Shi'ar Imperium. Not yet, human. Not yet. Oh, the Shi'ar are so delightfully terrible. Anyway, everything's fine. Pulse escaped, and we find out that his mission is to find the Silver Surfer on a mysterious mission that will save lots of lives. Hence the uh, surfboard thing earlier. I guess it could be both. Maybe he was trying to find the Silver Surfer... And he really likes surfing. Maybe that's why they sent Pulse specifically to find the Silver Surfer, because he figured that they'd have something to talk about. Maybe he was looking to save some lives and ride some waves. Oh, man. Space point break. I guess with fewer bank robberies. Well, I mean, maybe. We don't know what the news is. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so here for this. So this is our taste of John Francis Moore doing X-Force, I believe, for the first time. Uh, obviously, it's a standalone story that's not really representative story-wise of the run, but what did you think overall? I think it's fine. I think it's a fun little story. 
it feels like set up for something larger, which to an extent it is, as we'll find out shortly. To an extent. I will say, uh, overall, I like the way that Mora writes X-Force. They all come across as very distinctly defined, even if we see different personality traits and history bits highlighted than we have before. Yeah, it's definitely leaving me optimistic about his run. Indeed. Now, there is a second story in this annual called Denouement, uh, written by Terry Kavanaugh and Ben Robb and drawn by Ed Bennis and some other folks. Uh, this is actually the fourth tribute story. There have been three annuals in the past, uh, all about characters who have died. In X-Factor Annual 5, Jean mourns herself after the whole Phoenix, Dark Phoenix thing. In New Mutants Annual 6, Wolfsbane mourns Cypher. In X-Factor Annual 6, Mystique mourns Destiny. And this is Cable mourning Tyler. We've long talked about doing a an episode on the four tribute stories. Now that we've finally gotten to all of them, we'll do that at some point soon, when we're ready to be, I don't know, sad and contemplative. Aren't we always ready to be sad and contemplative? Is that how you say that? It's one of those words I've only really ever read rather than heard. I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. It's how I say it. Huh. Well, you know, always something to learn. And that brings us to the second comic that we'll be covering today. It's X-Men Unlimited, number 13, Fugitive from Space. Plotted by George Perez, scripted by Jorge Gonzalez, penciled by Duncan Rulo, Jim Calafiore, and Andrew Robinson, inked by Rob Hunter, Mark McKenna, and Al Milgram, colored by Tom Smith, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Ooh, that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty big art team we got there, huh? It sure is. Now, the name of the writer may be familiar to y'all, speaking of artists, because George Perez is best known as an artist. He penciled Avengers in the 70s and 90s, New Teen Titans in the 80s. Um, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal artist. Yeah, if someone were to ask me to just pick one single artist to define superhero art, George Perez would be very high in that running. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... I, I gotta say, he's, he's also, by all accounts, a really lovely guy. And we've talked a lot about, you know, the extent to which we can and are willing to separate the art from the artist. And it's usually in the opposite context. And here, I I, I gotta say, I feel a little bit bad because, man, I, I hope this isn't indicative of his writing in general. It is not a great issue. And part of that, obviously, comics are a fusion of writing and art. Part of that may be that we have this giant art team and that could make things a little bit muddled. I don't know, but it's a little rough, but we are going to tell you about it nonetheless, listeners. Now we start out on StarCore. Remember StarCore? Do I remember StarCore? StarCore is the space station built and maintained by Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo, the one and only. Yeah, it is. Alas, he does not appear in this story, although he is briefly name-dropped. Oh, that's a tease. Now, the X-Men, along with a friend of theirs, are here to help revive StarCore's power systems through some fairly hand-wavy science. Who have we got on the team? Because this isn't any one specific lineup. This is sort of a, a random grouping. Yes, indeed. From the X-Men, we have Cyclops, Phoenix, Bishop, Rogue, and Beast. And with them, this story is Binary. Oh, hey, Binary. That's uh, Carol Danvers slash Ms. Marvel slash Captain Marvel's spacey identity from this era. That's right, and way back in the Brood saga, Carol was experimented on by the Brood, and the result gave her the powers of a white hole. No relation to the actual, well, theoretical, actual, astronomical phenomenon. Um, she basically has hella energy powers. Very cosmic. And really cool hair that looks like it's made of spiky fire. Oh yeah, she has super, super kick-ass character design in general. 
there's an issue of, I believe, New Mutants that partially takes place out in Shi'ar space and features binary, and Bill Sienkiewicz draws her, and her hair is just these endless rays radiating from her skull of just, like, spiky, sketchy fire, and it's so cool. Oh, man, she's so awesome looking. And she ended up joining the Starjammers for a while, and here appears to be pretty much on her own and or affiliated with the X-Men. And the X-Men themselves, maybe they're a little jealous about Binary's cool appearance because they are using some interesting technological augmentations slash outfits. Like, Phoenix is in a really cool-looking psionic helmet of some sort. Binary, actually, she looks even cooler because she has some cool space gauntlets. And Cyclops, he's, uh, he's in, like, a big machine that seems to be pulling his arms back behind him and spreading his legs really wide. I, JJ, I'm not the only one seeing this, right? Like, I'm a pretty vanilla person. I don't have bondage goggles. This is a super kinky machine he's in, right? Yeah, from the waist up, he kind of reminded me of, like, a ship figurehead, although, and then I got the idea that maybe they were, like, going to aim him at something. I don't know. Well, he's got a weird little focusing lens on top of his visor. I assume that's what the machine is for, to hold him extra perfectly still so he can, you know, science, science, something, something. But why do his legs need to be spread that wide? What is the purpose of that? Like, I can't pretend I understand astrophysics. Maybe that's related. Uh, dick rays, Miles. Dick rays. Oh, dick rays. The worst marine life form. Oh, God! There was the Devil Rays team in Tampa near where I grew up, and some Christians got mad because it said devil. <laughs> Could have been worse. Oh, I always thought that was so funny because, like, Devil Rays are so ineffectual, like the actual ones. I, I don't know about the baseball team. I have no idea. But Dick Rays. Uh, okay, moving on. Fortunately for us, we don't actually have to worry too much about this because when we switch artists on page three, all that equipment disappears and never comes back. You know how we'll often praise artists when there are multiple artists on a book for how smooth it is going from one page to another and you can't really tell who's drawing? Oh, that is so not the case in this book. Like, it is vastly different from one page to the next and vastly inconsistent with stuff like that. It's a bumpy road. It is very... But I will say, so here we see a bunch of really complicated sci-fi stuff that changes from page to page with really no coherence or purpose. Uh, you know, that kind of sums up the, the story in some ways. Ouch. Now, whatever the hell they're doing, Binary's powers spin out of control and interrupt it. And then some Shi'ar show up to arrest her in the X-Men because Binary is too powerful. Well, the Shi'ar do have a habit of preemptively arresting and or killing powerful space women. Oh, yeah. yeah. This did definitely give me some Dark Phoenix Saga vibes. Yeah, but, like, so much worse. Uh, one credit to this bit, though. We do have some more cool names for Shi'ar ships here. We have the War Cry and the Howling Victory. I prefer the Nova Burst and the Hawk's Blood a little bit more, but, you know, these are, these are pretty good. Well, the Nova Burst was a Kree ship. Oh, that's true. Okay, so, you know, apples and oranges. The binary gets away, but the X-Men don't. And they learn that the Shi'ar who have captured them are working for Deathbird, Londra's sister, frequent rival, currently running Hala, etc. And because of all of the shit that went down in the X-Force Cable Annual, Deathbird and company have decided that the X-Men are all traitors to the Imperium and must be immediately put to death, because that's what Deathbird does when she's in a bad mood. I mean, her name is... Death bird, not like arrest bird or have a pleasant conversation with bird. Do process bird. <laughs> yeah, she's not here. 
unfortunately for the X-Men, Lalandra countermands that order. There is a bigger problem. Zenla has been destroyed. Zenla! If the name Zenla is familiar to you, that is because it is the home planet of Norrin Rad, better known as the Silver Surfer. Norrin Rad! I wish my name was Norrin Rad. So, Norrin Rad's deal, the Silver Surfer's deal, is, is roughly thus. He was a citizen of the planet Zenla. Um, Galactus showed up, was like, rawr, I'm gonna eat you. The planet, not just Norrin. Um, Norrin was like, uh, okay, but I'll tell you what, what if, what if you spare the the planet in exchange, I become your herald and I fly around and I find unpopulated planets for you to eat. Galactus was like, cool, bro, you want a space surfboard and the power cosmic? And Norrin was like, I'm into it. And off they went. That was a great summary of the Silver Surfer's origin, Jay. I feel like I covered the important bases. I think so. So... This is weird, though, because Zenla is destroyed. The Silver Surfer's home planet is destroyed. I feel like this should be a big deal, and a random X-Men Unlimited issue is a weird place to put it. It's like the time that Rachel Van Helsing from Tomb of Dracula died in a random X-Men annual. X-Men annuals are dangerous places to be. They really are. So I looked this up. Uh, Turns out George Perez had been writing Silver Surfer at this point. Uh, In fact, his second-to-last issue had just come out, and there had been the revelation that Zenla had been destroyed way, way, way earlier, and the Zenla that everybody thought was there, everyone being the Silver Surfer, the Marvel Universe, we the readers, was just an illusion Galactus had created because he felt bad about it. Which, uh, that's a a hell of a retcon. I mean— that means that none of the Zenla stuff in the Marvel Universe's history was real, like, ever. Wait, so where did Norrin Rad come from, then? Uh, I didn't look into it deeply enough for that. We do find out later, later, that, uh, the planet Zenla was destroyed in the 1940s, and so presumably he had left by that point. Um, it's complicated. No, that kind of makes sense to me. So, like, he he left Zenla, Zenla was destroyed, Galactus felt bad about it, so he got him another puppy and just gave it the same name and pretended it was the same puppy. Daddy, why is Zenla smaller than it used to be? Oh, that happens with planets sometimes, son. Exactly. So, anyway, that's what happened, and that's fine, that's a valid storyline, although from what I understand, the fans were not, well, a fan, again, because it meant that all the Zenla stories had been fake that we'd seen during the Silver, Bronze, etc. ages. Kind of a dick move on Galactus's part, but clearly he meant well. You know, road to hell, good intentions. But all of that said, this issue would have worked a hell of a lot better if we'd gotten some captions. Like, normally I hate the over-reliance on, see, the now-classic blah-blah-blah where this happened, but getting any of that would have been kind of awesome? Like, there's more stuff later where it's the same deal where we learn about Carol Danvers' past with creating a white hole to save the Marvel Universe and... When? Why? That context would have been important for this issue, presumably bought mostly by people who only read X-Men stuff. Yeah, I sort of assumed that that was fake backstory that was just written into this issue. But no, no, apparently it had had more context. Footnotes, at least, would have been nice. So, so speaking of that, Binary flies away to the far corner of the galaxy, drawn to some unseen distortion in space that is, in fact, where she created a white hole, and this white hole is now tearing up space, and it's all her fault, and her powers are out of control, and everything else is out of control, and it's all terrible. And Shi'ar sensors are currently picking up not only what Binary is up to, but traces of a malevolent psionic presence emanating from both her location and the wreckage of Zenla. And Beast takes one look at this and concludes immediately that it's some kind of conspiracy. Conspiracy in space! 
Yeah. Jean intercepts Binary and helps cut her off from the white hole, neutralizing the white hole's explosive activity, and also cuts her off from the mysterious insiders who apparently possessed and or set her up. That's inciters, those who incite, not like insiders who do, I don't know, stock trading or whatever. They could do both. That's true, they could do both. People are complicated. So are insiders. The other X-Men, meanwhile, head towards Zenla, and they intercept the Silver Surfer. Rogue absorbs just enough from him to recognize that he's not to blame for what happened. Also, Rogue can breathe in space now. Yeah, what the fuck? That would totally work for Jean. I mean, she's got Phoenixy stuff and telekinesis. Like, okay, but Rogue... Actually, you know what? I do have an explanation for that. We do know that Carol Danvers herself can breathe in space, even when she's not in her binary form. And we know that Rogue absorbed Carol Danvers' powers semi-permanently way back before her first appearance. So maybe that's just one of those powers that is very seldom mentioned. Actually, we're about to cover a run where the X-Men are in space a bunch and they all get spacesuits and Rogue's as pink. I wonder if she wears a helmet or if she just doesn't in space. I guess we'll find out. You know who else can breathe in space? Batman. So, near Zenla is the source of the disturbance. It's a rift in space, and Silver Surfer determines that the forces responsible are hiding inside, so he and Rogue head in, and what they encounter is a giant spaceship head, and I will quote here because it's pretty fun. The construct in front of them pulses in vigorous activity, twisting, contorting thriving off the tortured souls which have served as its lifeblood since the vessel consumed the inhabitants of Zenla. Metallic cables slither across the major arteries of the structure, pumping rejuvenating energies throughout its internal systems. Okay, this is a giant metal robot skull in space that ate a bunch of people's souls, and that is metal as I want this on a metal album cover, and I want to buy that album and look at the album cover while I listen to the music on it, which presumably is about giant metal cells in space eating souls. I want this on an album cover that I then awkwardly transfer to fabric and put on the back of a denim jacket with the sleeves ripped off. Oh, I love everything about this plan. Yes. So I guess this is apparently the official explanation at this point for what destroyed Zenla, but I'm pretty sure it will be completely retconned later on. So really all we have left is the memory of a beautiful, giant metal, soul-eating skull. And we really do only have the memory left, because uh, the inciters briefly possess Rogue, but Silver Surfer immediately unpossesses her, and then promptly blows up the big skull using the power cosmic, and that's it! Our heroes head home, and the Shi'ar neglect to tell them that the inciters are in fact part of Shi'ar lore. Yeah, I, I guess the news of the insiders actually existing would, in Lalandra's words, shake the Imperium's foundation and plunge the Shi'ar Empire into an age of upheaval and devastation. Sure, why not? And as the issue concludes, Lalandra herself adds, We shall never speak of this incident again. So say we all. But we haven't said all there is to say about this issue because there's a backup story. That's right. That is Junction, written by Jorge Gonzalez, penciled by Greg Landman. Remember when he actually drew comics? Inked by Mark McKenna, colored by Kelly Corvis, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Yeah, for real, the art in here just looks like pretty good standard comic book art. There is not any porn face going on. There is not any pornography that has been traced and airbrushed into comics art. 
that I know of. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a steep slide downhill. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, in this generally well-drawn comic, what happens? Well, Juggernaut heads to the Halloween festival in the small town of Junction, New York. He used to go there as a kid and got bullied one year by a guy dressed up as Uncle Sam and rescued by a nice lady named Marie who was dressed as an angel. So we saw a Halloween parade going on. I was positive this was going to be the actually very real, sorry, town of Rutland, Vermont. We've had so many Halloween parade stories there, but no, it's New York. I don't know. Maybe they thought that Uncle Sam pushing a kid out of a tree while smoking a cigarette would like give Rutland a bad name. So they had to make somewhere up. Oh, it's a great metaphor for America, though. It kind of is like this little story is worth it for that bit alone. Anyway, after being incited by some feckless teens, an adult juggernaut just wrecks the town. Kiss your precious little town goodbye, folks! It's especially funny because there's someone in a kiss costume behind him. (laughs) Yeah, kiss. Gene Simmons is a real shithead, though. In a callback to X-Men Unlimited number 12, Gomer the Ancient shows up dressed as a ghost to tell Juggernaut off. Remember, Gomer was the mystic who journeyed with Juggernaut into the Gem of Sidorak, where Onslaught had shoved him, to try to get Juggernaut to turn over a new leaf and not be a jerk, and Juggernaut basically said, nah. Also, remember Marie, the angel, or well, the person dressed as an angel who saved little kid Juggernaut from Malevolent Uncle Sam? I do. She's here again, and she hasn't really aged, and she's in the rubble, and uh, she's gonna die if Juggernaut doesn't get her medical help, so he does, but then everyone's really mean to him because he just wrecked their fucking town. Uh, So he decides he's not going to be controlled by anyone or anything, including the gem and Gomer the Ancient, and he storms off. And that's the end of that. Yeah, uh, I would say it's not terribly relevant to continuity, but it actually a little bit is because Marie Cavendish, not Marie Callender, as I kept calling her in my head, is going to be mentioned again in Chuck Austin's Trial of Juggernaut story many, many years after this. And I'll say it right here. I know Chuck Austin's X-Men run is relatively reviled, and I'm not a fan overall, but he wrote a good, interesting juggernaut, damn it. Yeah, yeah, I will definitely give him that, if little else. You know who we'd give a lot to, including 365 episodes of our podcast? Our listeners, and they've got questions. Brandon asks via email, Colossus is persistently described as being able to turn into organic steel. In addition to the showing that many writers don't know the definition of organic, I just realized that many writers also apparently don't know the definition of steel either. Steel is an alloy composed of iron, a bit of carbon, and often some other elements like nickel and phosphorus to give it specific properties. So Colossus turns into a synthetic metal, not one found in nature. Although I I will decide point out that it has carbon in it, so it is in fact organic. Anyway, Brandon continues... And this just seems really weird to me. Do other mutants have powers based on human-made substances like rubber or glass or paper or rayon? Additionally, are there any human-made substances that you think would make interesting or fun bases for mutant powers? Uh, so a couple things. A, this is a really hard question to look up, as it turns out. Um, B, yes. Uh, Jeremy, that's his whole name, from Uncanny number 427 later on, also turns his body into steel, so it's just kind of the same thing. Um, I did also find a character named Rubbermaid who turns her body into rubber, but I guess rubber is kind of a naturally occurring thing. Like, there are rubber trees and stuff, right? Yeah. Sounds kind of like a Tick character, doesn't she? She does. That's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, Glob Herman is is made of paraffin. 
Yeah, uh, technically it's bioparaffin, but I think it counts. Paraffin is a thing that you need to, like, mess with natural stuff to make exist. There were probably others I really couldn't find any, so listeners, if uh, you have any examples, by all means, maybe you'll run into the same problem I did, where all the things that you thought were man-made are actually natural. I've got a couple more. They're characters whose powers don't exclusively fit into this category, but can, and those are alchemy and husk. Uh, true, true, because alchemy definitely messes with specific metals and or substances based on his powers, and Husk can turn herself into all sorts of substances. Yeah, exactly. As for the second part of the question, what would we like to see in stories? Oh, easy answer. Silly putty. I mean, we know that stretchy powers are a classic, but a mutant with with man-made silly putty powers could also press up against newspaper comics to create cool temporary tattoos. And if those were drawn by that one guy, Ink, from the second run of New X-Men, or maybe the third, um, then each of those newspaper comic tattoos on silly putty would also give this character additional powers. It's not human-made, but I'd like to see someone who's basically made of francium has to wear a serious containment suit. Oh, is that one of those elements that if it touches water explodes real big? Rare Earth, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will also say whatever that stuff is inside lava lamps. I mean, I don't even care what the story would be. It would just look really cool, and I want to see artists draw those. Lava lamps are rad. Mark asks via email, In your recent coverage of Pride and Wisdom, you mentioned Kitty and Pete drinking at the Drones Club. This is, of course, the name of the club frequented by Bertie Wooster and other idle rich men in the works of P.G. Wodehouse, which makes one wonder if Jeeves was a mutant with some sort of butler-related power. What book or other work of fiction would you like to see canonically intersect with a 616? Candide. Oh, good answer. That's it. That's my answer. Oh, fair enough. For me, so I know I recently brought it up, but Psychonauts, a school or summer camp for various psychics in the Marvel Universe, like the Strange Academy, but psychic stuff instead of magic, would be so much fun. Keep that wacky tone that both Psychonauts and Strange Academy share. It would be beautiful. Also, the Inferno-era exterminators, you know, like Boom Boom and Richter and Artie and Leech and stuff, uh, grabbing a meal at Bob's Burgers while they were on the run and then walking out on the bill would feel very, very right. But I guess the Belchers probably have enough problems without Boom Boom blowing up their already shark-damaged soft-serve machine, so uh, maybe that would be even too depressing for Bob's Burgers. I feel like Saki would have done some fun stuff with mutants. Oh, right. Saki, remind me again. H.H. Uh, Monroe, a lot of short stories. There was something about a weasel? A polecat, yes, Sredni Vashtar, which I think came up in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Come for the X-Men, stay for the incredibly obscure repeated references. Saki is not that obscure. I mean, I couldn't remember the polecat thing. Clearly we spent our childhood somewhat differently. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts, and occasionally polecats, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, here's the angry Claremontian narrator. Aw, Mark. Look at you, trying so hard to wrap your mind around events far too complex for your primitive little brain to comprehend. Really, you should consider taking a cue from Lexi Cassano. Just give up, close your eyes, and to survive the experience. And from there, the microphone goes to the highly qualified, sexy super doctor astronaut, Peter Corbeau. I'm sorry I couldn't meet you on StarCore, X-Men. I know it was asking a lot for you to strap yourselves into all that baffling technology just to do my little space station a favor. 
I had an obligation I couldn't miss. The Super Doctor Astronaut 2022 Seminar for Excellence in the Field of Dating, or as I call it, Sexcellence. And what a group we have this year. Patty Baxter of Doom has proven herself quite the polymath of appeal. Why she's stolen the show in the astrogation, media archaeology, and ethnochoreology portions of our advanced dating technique courses. You'd be surprised at how often those areas of study come in handy on a date, Patty. Or perhaps, given how well you've taken to them, you wouldn't. And Amanda. Well, I've seldom seen a seminar participant who's excelled at Amanda's level in terms of our paleogeography, ichthyology, and stochastic process workshops. Well done, Amanda. They'll be lining up for your charming icebreakers. Well, I should get back to it. Once this seminar is over, I have plans to definitively solve the trolley problem, break the world Rubik's Cube record, and perfect cold fusion. Until next time, seminar participants and X-Men alike, never stop becoming a better you. And with that... The end of this full year's worth of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes? Perhaps 365 more? Come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, we'll be spending some quality time with Edna and Norton McCoy's favorite son in the Beast miniseries. Yeah, um, digital art was a mistake. That's not what I wanted to say. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just reminded of that Captain America line from Sixus, where it's just a close-up on him saying, democracy was a mistake. It's almost as good as the illusion of Gene when Cassandra Nova pretends to be here, who just says, fuck you, humanity. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, comics are so stupid.